Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Here We Are podcast. We have a fantastic episode for you today. I'm very excited to launch the Stand Up Science Tour for 2019. Have had, at the time I'm recording this, I've had two shows, both sold out, both were fantastic. Thank you, Lacrosse, Wisconsin, and Portland, Oregon. Coming up next, by the time that you're listening to this, I'm in for January, Indianapolis, Pittsburgh, Columbus, Ohio, Cleveland, Chicago, Lansing, Michigan, Kalamazoo, Michigan, Royal Oak, Michigan, Madison, Wisconsin, Milwaukee, Des Moines, Iowa, and then for February, Iowa City, Minneapolis, Rhode Island, Boston, Newmarket, Portland, Maine, Harrisburg, Virginia, Richmond, Virginia for March, Norfolk, Virginia, Raleigh, North Carolina, Greensboro, Asheville, Oak Ridge, Tennessee, Nashville, Tennessee, adding a few more dates in there around that area, around the southeast area. More on that soon, as well as I have uh, just confirmed Denver and Boulder working on some other stuff around Colorado and uh, the Mountain Time Zone area as well. I'll keep you updated with that. Thank you for the support. I am an insanely busy person right now just trying to book two scientists and a comedian for each one of the stand-up science shows is a tremendous undertaking in and of itself, and uh, it's been going well so far, but I am busy, busy, busy. Um, This is good. I like being busy. I'm, I'm a lot more mentally healthy when I'm busy rather than when I'm kind of trying to figure out what the next thing is and uh, kind of have all of that uncertainty about my future and where I'm going to be booked next month and blah, blah, blah. So these are just different problems and these are good problems to have. And I'm excited to see all of you out in all these cities. Thank you so much for the support. Enjoy today's episode. Are we? Yes. Where are we? Here. Why are we here? Not entirely clear. We are misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all. It's immensely bizarre. Here we are. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Here We Are podcast. Today, I am talking with Associate Professor in the Human Development and Family Studies Department at the University of Wisconsin, Madison. Heather Kikorian is joining me today. How are you doing, Heather? Just fine, thanks. How are you? Thanks for coming on the show. And you're going to be my very first guest on my first stand-up science show. I've been telling the listeners all about it. And it's tomorrow. I mean, listeners are going to be hearing this well after the fact. So I'll give them an update. But I don't know how it's going to go. You don't know how it's going to go. I'm optimistic. I have a very good feeling about it. But you, you don't even know who I am. And you took a chance. Uh, <laughs> you took a chance on doing the show. And I'm so excited for it and appreciative to you. And you're also willing to come on the Here We Are podcast and tell listeners about your work. So thank you so much. Thanks for having me. So let's talk about your work. I feel like maybe it's I have a good friend of mine that's having a baby. And so I don't know if it's because I have like babies on my mind more. I don't know if we normally talk about children and human development this much on the podcast or if I'm just noticing it more because there's uh, uh, one of my best friends is having a baby soon. But uh, but we've been we've been talking about it here and there lately on the podcast, and it is such a fascinating subject. And so it's so interesting to see every bit of research 
on children is like an origin story for for the listeners. We get to all hear the science about you know our very early development, and it blows my mind. And you have child development is probably something that is you wouldn't think would be terribly controversial or whatever, but I bet you get a lot of opinionated people. I'll bet we've talked about stereotypes on this show and, and, uh, you know, climate change and things like that, that, you know, people have opinions about, but I'm sure you get a lot of, (laughs) a lot of very opinionated people commenting on your work because you talk about the interaction between children and, uh, specifically in a lot of your work, toddlers and multimedia and screens, tablets, that sort of thing. Am I right or am I wrong in that in, in that this is like a controversial thing for a lot of people? You're very much right. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely correct. Yeah, it's a, a it's a hot topic, and everybody has an opinion because they experience digital media in their own lives. So everybody has some expertise, at least for themselves. So it's it's something everybody has an opinion about and really differing opinions about. Because I imagine you got into studying human development, and you probably didn't think that anything you were going to say was going to be terribly controversial when you started what what's your origin story how did you get into this field in the first place and get to be where you are yeah it's a a little circuitous actually so i started out um as a marine biology major I thought I would be studying dolphins. Uh, when Everyone I was, uh, wants to study school. dolphins. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Every middle school girl, especially, here I go stereotyping, yeah. wants to study <laughs> dolphins, I feel like. Yeah, I was. Uh, I started on that path because I had was watching it, you know, in middle school or something, watching a documentary about how scientists study dolphins' memory and learning. And I just thought it was super cool and interesting. So I started out as a marine biology major quickly learned I wasn't interested in biology, I was interested in psychology. So I switched majors. And uh, it was that interest in learning, uh, in how to study learning, especially in, let's say, individuals who can't tell us what they're thinking and can't tell us what they remember. So we have to find creative, clever ways to test that. And I think that's what I was excited about with the dolphin research. And that's what excites me about infant, toddler, young child research. So you moved to marine psychology. <laughs> yeah, animal psychology, I think, is what drew me to it. And I quickly learned that uh, there are some parallels between uh, studying how dolphins think and studying how babies think. <laughs> really? So so then what was the shift for you? When did your path deviate into the human development? Yeah, so I switched to psychology in my second year in college, uh, early in my second year in college, became a psychology major with a focus on cognition and and child development. Um, and it, the lab I worked in was an adult development and aging lab, because that's what they had at that university. But for graduate school, I applied to mostly developmental psychology programs to study how children think and learn, um, and just serendipitously found the the researcher I ended up working with in graduate school who was working with Sesame Street and Blue's Clues and other programs like that at the time to try to make them maximally beneficial for kids. Hmm. So I was just watching a, a little bit of the Mr. Rogers documentary that came out recently. And ha- have you seen? Have you I've seen not yet. All? No. Well, I only saw half of it, but it was a lot of the, the premise of it was he, when he first saw television, uh, he saw you know, all this stuff for kids was just like cartoons hitting the animals with mallets or whatever. And he, and he thought that this was going to influence young minds in a negative way and wanted to present things in, uh, a, a 
better context for creating better individuals. And this is, uh, uh, th- this is something Sesame Street has tried to do. How involved is something like Sesame Street in in going out and finding the science behind this? In my mind, it probably just started with a bunch of people that liked doing puppets for kids and didn't have any idea of the development. But now they're this enormous machine, and I'm sure Disney and every other uh, child organization uh, talks with people like you all the time, right? Sometimes. <laughs> I won't go so far as to say all the time. Yeah, the Sesame Street origin story is a little bit different from most others. So I think um, Sesame Workshop, the creators of Sesame Street and other programs, do far more than most media creators to know what the research is, so far as um, even having their own research team in-house. So they do research on their shows. Folks with PhDs who have degrees in developmental science or related fields and know a lot about child development and how to support optimal development for kids, helping to create the curriculum for the show. They have researchers on advisory boards. They conduct their own research continuously. So I think they do a lot more than most in that area. So I think that's pretty rare in the field. Um, so Sesame Street's probably one of the few examples of shows that are really rigorously tested. Yeah, well, are they still publicly owned or... or uh... They're, Are they still PBS? Uh, so they, they air on PBS, but they have a relationship with HBO now, too. Oh, okay. It, yeah, because obviously Sesame Street is selling itself on, you know, or creating infotainment or whatever for for children. But there's a, there's a lot of organizations out there that just want to sell frosted cereal or whatever it might be to children. And I imagine... They're they're hiring some of the same development uh, developmental psychologists to figure out how to market to children as well, right? Yeah, absolutely. So um, one of the things we get asked about a lot from parents who participate in our research is how we plan to use the information. Are we going to sell it to Disney so they can sell their children candy or whatever? I mean, of course, that's not our intention. But the reality is, if we understand how children learn from media, then we understand how they can learn all kinds of things from media. Mm -hmm. And that could be letters and numbers, and it could be brands for candy and sugared cereals and those kinds of things. So the same information can be used to support both of those goals. You might not have an answer to this question, but I am curious. You might know some of the history of this. People talk about tablets, and we're going to get into children playing with tablets and and, uh, working with these interfaces. And this is, uh, you know, controversial. I was was talking with my my dad today, and he can't believe that, you know, some kids are left alone this is very jarring compared to how he grew up that kids are just kind of left alone with their tablets as a babysitter or whatever but was there the same kind of controversy controversy when things like Mr. Rogers and Sesame Street were coming out was was there was the same kind of conversation happening in the origins or were people just excited about it at the time do you do you know yes uh yes and yes yeah, so there there was the same controversy, and I would say there continues to be the same controversy around educational television or television in general. And to go back even further, the same controversy existed for novels 100, 150 years ago, and um, sort of for writing and, and print long before that. There are these famous letters between Socrates and Plato about the, the dangers of ri- the written word and how that will destroy our ability to think and remember things. So it comes up with every new medium. Hmm. I wonder how they like 
kept track of, <laughs> of the, which was the one that was against writing. I forget which. Uh, do you remember? Oh, it's it was a teacher, so that would be Plato, right? His he, student was Socrates. Yeah, I think yeah, I yeah, get yeah. it backwards so, sometimes. Yeah, yeah, me too. Uh, yeah, I think it was Plato, but it's so funny because we wouldn't know he said any of that if it weren't for <laughs> written right. writing. I guess I never really thought about that as as um, some you know, salacious books or whatever back then. There's been censorship on novels and everything else and what's allowed in schools. I suppose that still happens. Because I guess there's plenty of games for uh, for a tablet or whatever interface that are probably not all that different than, say, flashcards. Really, these are all just different mediums, right? Yeah, yeah, for sure. And the, the, as you know, the, what makes a game is a very, very, very broad category. And that can include things that are like simple flashcards where you get points for getting them right. And so that's a very simple game that's completely different from a lot of the games folks think of when they think of kids playing games. But that's absolutely right. What would you say? Because I don't think anyone out there is anti-flashcard. I haven't, I'm not really, I don't have kids. So I'm not totally up to, there might be an anti-flashcard movement out there that I'm unaware of. If so, they aren't very good at marketing, but, um, uh, uh, they're, they're a quiet bunch. Uh, what, what is the difference between seeing something? I hold up a flashcard here. I have some information, a math equation on on a on a little piece of postcard um what what's the difference between that and seeing something on a screen cognitively do you know have have has has science revealed this difference to us yet yeah so in terms of cognitively i think folks like me who study learning from different sources of information whether that's a real person or a story you know a print story or a, a tv show or a game um, I often think about the activity exactly as you described it. What are we doing cognitively when we're doing this activity? So for me, I focus a lot less on the device or the medium and a lot more on what the activity is. Um, there's surprisingly little research that compares these things in a really carefully controlled experimental way. But the research that is out there suggests we engage in really similar processes when we're, um, for example, listening to an audio story or a print printed story as when we're watching a video story. So understanding a narrative, comprehending that narrative, connecting different parts of the story involves the same parts of the brain and um, and similar cognitive processes, whether it's presented on a screen or or in, in audio format. And of course, there are some differences. Visual cortex will be engaged differently if you're watching a video, these kinds of things. Um, and I think one of the things I hear a lot from critics of television is, um, yeah, but when you read a book, you have to imagine everything. And when you're watching a video, a movie or a TV show, everything's spoon fed to you. And I think that's true for some things. And the opposite is true for other things. Um, so to condense a lengthy novel down into a movie length, you know, feature film um, requires a lot of condensation. Some things are left out, of course, but a lot of things are implied or inferred by the viewer. So there are a lot of things you don't see when you're watching a movie, like the internal mental states of the characters. You have to infer that based on facial expression and context. So we make a lot of inferences when we're watching TV and movies that we don't have to make when we're reading books. Oh, man, have I been laboring over books for no reason? I could have just been watching some documentaries or something like that that would have that would have delivered the same amount of information. Well, I guess people can listen to this podcast and they're they're just as there you <laughs> go. Yeah, and I think I don't know anyone who advocates watching TV instead of reading, but I do think the average person tends to focus on the the differences between those rather than similarities, and I think there are a lot more similarities than 
differences. Hmm. Well, we do. We have in the past talked about uh, some of the differences between active and passive, say, leisure, for example, is a topic that we've covered uh, several times on the show. And uh, it seems like the jury's still out a little bit, but it seems like the general consensus is if you're if you're uh, if you're sitting there watching a TV program, this is a passive activity compared to if you're out hiking or something like that. That's an active activity, and these active activities kind of stick with the mind a little more. But maybe that's just a false equivalency because these are two. You know, one is hiking and one is watching a, a program about cooking or something like that. Right. And I, I think, I think one of the false comparisons are, that's often made is the assumption that an, a still body is the same as a still mind. So just because I'm not physically moving doesn't mean I'm not cognitively active. So I'm, I find the term passive media use versus active sort of aversive um, comparison mm-hmm. because cognitively um, kids and adults alike are very cognitively active when they watch um, television and movies. That's not to be not to say that it's the same as going for a hike, for example, as you said. Um, and I think there's there's plenty of research showing that physical activity is important. Um, what the comparison I always draw when folks bring this up is, well, what about reading a book versus going for a hike? Would we ever say we shouldn't read a book because it's passive rather than go for a hike because it's active? Um, I think most reasonable people would say you should find space for both of those kinds of things in your life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I guess when I when I see it, actually kind of drives me crazy because I think I have like kind of uh, uh, you know I spend a lot of time trying to research this. I try to put science into my acts. I'm like my my comedy is smart because there's science in it. But when, when you go and see like something billed as like a smarter comedy or whatever indie, com- a lot of times it's just a bunch of comics making, uh, comic book references. <laughs> and that kind of drives me crazy. But at the same time, I have to admit that, you know, this, there, there is, uh, um, there's a lot of ways in which people can create clever metaphors for things uh, and and say very powerful, thought provoking things through uh, uh, through references uh, in in uh, in media. So perhaps I've been a little too hard on on uh, the, and it's also uh, I think it's just me being hard on myself because I used to watch tons and tons of television and I'm like I've wasted all this time and now I try to be, now I'm like evangelical the other way. I'm not sure. It seems like you, it seems like you're, uh, uh, you, you're maybe, at least in some of your research, finding a little balance between the fight of, uh, because most people, if you ask your average person, they'll be like, even if they watch a lot of TV, they'll be like, TV's bad for you. Right? But maybe that's not the case. Yeah, I, I think that's true. And I think it's especially true in the world in which I live, like the academic world. Um, I think uh, the colleagues I encounter in the academic world are particularly um, likely to be anti sort of TV is toxic mindsets, like anti TV, anti technology, especially for kids. Um, and I think a lot of academics are people who grew up being really comfortable with reading and really enjoying reading and finding reading really valuable and rewarding. So it's easy to understand why um, folks like me tend to think 
oh, uh, reading is is great and cognitively active and really smart and thought provoking and t- watching television is mindless. But I think that's a very um, culturally bound stereotype, sort of subculture, I guess, a subculturally bound stereotype that we tend to have. Hmm. Well, so maybe at least we don't have to feel on top of uh, blowing off some steam at the end of the day and relaxing in front of the TV. We don't need to feel guilty about that on, on top of everything else. What about, I, I tend to ask some questions that are related a bit outside of your specific research. So you're also free to like, just not comment on something if you want, or if you don't know the, the research behind it. But I have a question about something. I can just quick go and Google it without uh, like, like say, um, uh, it, you know, I, I'm taking class of yours and you present, uh, the, you present the class with a question. Well, I can just type that question into Google and an answer pops up, up for me and then I can just respond with the answer. And that information is, is barely really even entering my mind, it seems like. It seems like I don't, if I'm maybe not having to work it out myself a little bit, maybe it's not sticking in there in, in, in the same way that I feel like I used to be decent with directions and now we have uh this uh these wonderful GPSs that I use all the time but now I'm I'm completely lost without my uh my GPS. I guess my concern is are we going to be lost informationally if we can just google everything at our fingertips and we never need to kind of work through these uh these answers ourselves and put more deliberate thought into them? Yeah, it's a great question. It's something that I I hear a lot and and think about a lot and talk to people about a lot. Um, It's not something that I've ever studied. Um, But it uh, it's sort of links back to that sort of historical perspective we were talking about earlier, where this kind of concern has been brought up for centuries about every new form of media and the printed word was, um, was no exception. And I think, um, I, I think most of us would would agree that we've been able to do incredible technological advances because we have technology at our fingertips. So because we don't have to memorize everything, we can have a printed manual, we can make sort of technological advances, for instance. So I think some of it comes down to what um, what that kind of cognitive offloading allows you to do. So what I mean by that is, um, so yes, you can quickly Google an, a, a, a fact, um, but as an educator, I think most of us are less concerned about our students memorizing facts as we are about them becoming creative problem solvers and collaborative problem solvers and Mm -hmm. critical thinkers. So if we can, um, I don't necessarily have a problem with offloading that kind of fact memorization to technology if it gives more opportunities to engage in more critical discussion and critical thinking, collaborative problem solving. That may or may not always be the case in every classroom. So it depends on how it's used. And I think there are fields in which that doesn't matter. I would imagine most um, most folks in medical school would say, yes, memorizing facts is incredibly important, or pharmaceutical um, areas or things like that, that memorizing facts is really important for some fields. Um, but in the the fields in which I work, it's that sort of more advanced critical thinking is much more important than fact memorization. Yeah, I think I could have, I, I made a, might have paid attention a bit more in school had it not been for the just uh, the the grinding out of the memorization of the trivial details of when Columbus sailed the ocean blue or you know mm-hmm. whatever I I could have done a, a without a lot of that um and 
And I think the argument could be made as if you are, uh, say, a pharmacist that needs to memorize these trivial details. Uh, your job is <laughs> is kind of, uh, you know, susceptible to being taken over by by automation faster as well. I guess the future is, I mean, the future is going going to be so cognitively different isn't it or does it just seem i don't know does it just seem like jarring because it's 38 does does it always just feel this way when you when you <laughs> reach like a certain age you go man these kids these days and what are how are they gonna interact with the new this and that and it's gonna ruin everything yeah i think that's a really natural response for folks of an age and i count myself <laughs> among them now unfortunately um I, I think that's true for every single generation and there are pros and cons with everything and um in my field i i often focus on um i mentioned earlier the sort of activity that's taking place and how are you processing that information um and also the content so for example not all tv shows are created equal just like not all books are created equal so depending on what kinds of information you're pursuing that could be a more or less beneficial activity and I think the same is true for newer forms of technology. So we often hear about in the news or in everyday conversations, we hear about the potential perils of social media, for example, and there are potential perils of social media for young people. But there are also huge benefits out there, the potential for huge benefits. So I think it just always has to come down to how technology is being used, what's the content and what's the activity. Okay. This is the most important question I'm going to ask. You have to answer it right away. You can't <laughs> think about it at all. What is better for your mind? Uh, Game of Thrones or The Bachelor? Go. <laughs> um, I So I'll, I'll explain my answer first. <laughs> I'll explain my answer first. In terms okay. of cognitive processing, Game of Thrones is narrative. Um, <laughs> and I would argue The Bachelor is more expository. And I think there's a lot Ooh. of research showing the power of narrative for learning. Um, that said, I'm sure they both have benefits. And I'm, I tend to be very... Um, we say in my lab a lot, parent positive and tech positive. Like we trust parents to make good choices, knowing their kids and, and how they're going to benefit. Um, and so if there's a particular reason why one wants to watch The Bachelor and <laughs> thinks they're gaining, even if that means, oh, so here's, here's a, here's a counterpoint to my own argument. I'll contradict myself within, within one minute. Wonderful. Um, <clears throat> Uh, so a, a potential counterpoint is, um, I think a lot of folks watch their shows in a social context. So they'll get together with friends and watch every week when it comes out. And I haven't done that in ages because I just watch everything on, you know, on demand streaming media. So I no right. longer set a date with friends to watch a show. Um, and there can be great benefits to doing that kind of thing and sharing that sort of common experience or common culture you can talk about at work the next day. So I think The Bachelor might have Potential, I'll say potential benefits. Um, right, above there's and maybe less substance demand. in, say, like a, a given sports game, but you get to get together with your friends and you're not really, not everyone's sitting there like watching every second intensely necessarily. This is a social event. Sure. And I'm, I'm not a sports viewer, Me but from what I either. gather, it's <laughs> very common to not watch much of the game and socialize most of the time. Uh, I I don't watch like 99% of the game when I'm over at someone's house that has a game on. So. Right. Okay, so let's get into your work. Finally, right? I'm sorry. I I sometimes meander. I have my own things I'm interested in, and I don't. I'm very interested in your work, but it sometimes takes me forever to get into exactly what you do, which is very interesting. So you talk. So you study the interaction with toddlers 
and uh, and um, uh, some of these different devices, tablets and such. Can you talk a little bit about uh, some of the some of the main things that your lab works on? Yeah, sure. So, so our work for most developmental scientists, those of us in this big interdisciplinary field studying how children learn and develop, we tend to talk about our research as being about learning or and or about development. So, um, when we think about the impact of digital media on learning, we do a lot of research on testing what toddlers and preschoolers learn from different sources of information. And so we do lots of experiments comparing, for example, whether toddlers learn better from a real life demonstration or a demonstration on video or an interactive video versus a non-interactive video or ebook or print book. So we do lots of studies like that, little lab experiments with, um, I say toddlers and preschoolers. So toddler studies tend to be 18 to 36 months and preschoolers three to five years, roughly. So we have these two buckets. The other arm of our research is looking at um, the impact of digital media on development. And mostly how we've done that so far is looking at, um, we tend to do these controlled laboratory experiments in in my lab. Um, So we look at how children play, for example, when there's a TV on or not in the room. So we have this living room kind of lab space and we have preschoolers come in, for instance, for half an hour, and we have the TV on with a kid's show for 10 minutes and a grown-up show for 10 minutes and no TV for 10 minutes. And we look at changes, and um, we're now we're doing a new study now where we have them wearing wristbands, kind of like a Fitbit kind of thing to track heart rate and other physiological markers hmm, um, so while they're playing. I, I love it. It's a great data set to play with. So we're interested in how children play and interact with their parents, for example, when there's TV or no TV. So those ah. are kind of the two arms of our research. Wow. Okay. Now this is one. If you tell me that it's okay to have the TV on and they're playing just the same and interacting with their, their parents just the same, I'm going to be shocked. This will be a controversial finding for me. I'll tell I go to, I go to dinner with friends or my girlfriend or whatever. I'm, I'm meeting up with my cousin in town, uh, tonight and his wife. We're going to go out for burgers and there's a TV in every Gosh darn place. Excuse my language. Uh, these days. And it drives me out of my mind. It, it doesn't matter if it's like, it can be th- like sports, for example. I don't care at all about sports, but it doesn't matter if it's like some eighties movie. It, it's never anything that I'm interested in first off, but somehow I still find myself watching this stupid thing on tv and i can't constant now is this because the people i'm hanging out with are such a bore or is it just that there's these blinking lights in my periphery and i can't keep my attention yeah I'm not going to say it's not because the people you're out with are bored because I have no empirical evidence to that regard. <laughs> um, but absolutely the, the movement and, and if the, the sound is up, the, the noise, um, of background television is definitely distracting for infants and children and adults alike. Um, so yeah, you'll catch me here. This is one of the few places where I tend to be a bit less media positive or tech positive for kids. Um, one of the primary things I recommend when folks say, Oh, based on your research, what's the number one recommendation you would give for parents? And it's turn the TV off if you're not watching it. So I don't think it's problematic for kids to watch an hour of educational age appropriate TV a day. 
unnecessarily for for most kids. Um, But uh, it's the the cases, and this is more common than we'd like to think, uh, the cases where the TV is just a constant presence in the background, um, when kids are doing things other than watching TV, um, when they could be engaging in complex toy play or interacting with caregivers and siblings. um, That's one place where I think we can can do better as a society, sort of turning the TV off when it's not in use. Um, And so, yeah, the research shows that Kids uh, interact less with their parents. The quantity and quality of those interactions go down if there's a TV in use um, in the background. Um, their um, the quantity and quality of their toy play goes down, so they spend less time playing with toys. Their play episodes are shorter. Their focused attention is lower. So for toddlers and preschoolers, it certainly seems to be the case that background TV is distracting, as you would predict based on your own experience. And the same is true for kids in school doing homework in front of the TV. They're slower, they make more errors, they're less likely to remember what they've read. Um, And so there are lots and lots of reasons to not multitask with TV and, and other things. Okay, I thought you were going to get on. I thought you were going to jump on the pro multitasking ship. That would have been very controversial because that's everyone. the The craze these days is the monotasking, right? Mm-hmm. This is how we. This is how we increase our productivity and happiness and make friends. I'm overselling it now, but um, but but it's uh, focusing on kind of one task at a time. You'll get ten things done. You try to you try to do ten things at once. You'll get none of them done. Is sort of the idea what what some of the research shows with multitasking, right? Yeah, exactly. Paraphrase. Yep, yep. You're slower. You're less efficient. You get less done. You remember it less often, and you're stressed out. And you're stressed stressed out. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Did you hear that, everybody? <laughs> uh, now there, I, I do worry about stressing people out about stress. Like sometimes when you sure. learn about stress, it's stressful. <laughs> sure. <laughs> I don't want to yeah. compound the problem. But um, it, okay. So Juan, curious before we go to your other. So you mentioned three different groups. You had no TV, children programming, adult programming what's what's the difference that there has to be a difference between the children programming and adult programming right yeah definitely so a lot of the research we've done in the past on background television is using adult directed tv things like jeopardy you know things that aren't necessarily objectionable for children but they're just not likely you know an 18 month old or 24 month old isn't likely to understand a whole lot about jeopardy or wheel of fortune so it's really just a background distractor like the bar scenario you described um and and so in those studies again and again we find lower quantity and quality of parent-child interaction and children's toy play. In our current studies, we're uh, it's the first study in which I've had both of those types of TV. So it's a child-directed program for a few minutes and an adult-directed program. And as you might predict, they look a lot more often at the child-directed program. I have been surprised. So the, the a lot of the research on kids kind of preschoolers and naturalistic TV viewing behaviors in a living room type setting, whether it's at home or in a lab, um, took place in the the late 70s, early 80s, a lot of that research. So that research has happened a long time ago, and I wouldn't have thought a lot of those things changed. But what I've been surprised by is how quickly the kids in our lab just put down the toys, sit back and watch the TV show when it's on, when it's for kids. Um, Because the older research suggests that kids would multitask a lot more and play with toys and occasionally look up at the TV screen. Um, And there are lots of reasons why that might be the case. But we expected to see a lot more sort of switching back and forth between the toys and the TV show. And what we're basically seeing is most of these three to five-year-olds are playing with toys very happily. And the minute the kid's show comes on, they sit down, put the toys away and just sit and watch the show for seven minutes straight. Hmm. 
Is TV getting better faster than toys are getting better? Is that, is that what's happening? It's, it's possible. I mean, it's, it's a good show. I think they're, they're interested in the show for sure. We also have them in the room for a little bit before the TV comes on. So it could be that they've kind of explored the room. And if the TV were on the minute they got in the room, they might be more interested in the toys. Uh, but it's possible they've sort of gotten familiar with the room well enough by the time the TV comes on that they're they shift their attention. And when the TV goes off again, they go back to playing with toys. So, um, so they do go back to toy play. It's not like once a lot, I think a lot of folks worry that if the TV comes on, then kids will be frustrated when the show's over and they want to just keep watching TV. And that's definitely not what we're seeing. And I'm sorry, I might have missed this because even just thinking about TV distracts me. It turns out I'm learning <laughs> during this interview. Uh, so how much are they watching uh, of the adult programming that when the adult programming is on, how distracting is that yeah yeah so that's a good question I, I did not say yeah so they they do look at the tv show and the percents that i just i was looking at it this morning and i'm already forgetting the percents but they oh do boy, look at we're gonna have some angry <laughs> listeners double checking you and writing in she said 37 percent. it says on her site 34 <laughs> you lied to me so oh, I, you could say whatever no one's gonna <laughs> so I, I won't make up numbers but i'm sure everyone <laughs> will forgive me for not throwing statistics out there yeah so they they do look at the adult tv show and what what uh because I'm a nerd who likes the data and studies development. What I found really interesting is how, um, so these kids are between three and five years of age. So that when they're watching the kid TV show, they're at like 90, 95% attention on average, whether they're three or four or five. Um, But for the adult TV show, which is a narrative show, so it's a a, a sort of drama type show, um, there there are big age differences. So the three-year-olds do not look very often at all. They look, but for very short periods of time. But the older they get, the more and more they look. So that by the time they're older, five-year-olds they're looking as much at the adult directed show as the kid directed show even though most of it's probably not very comprehensible to them hmm well i mean there's a there's a bit of um in that learning process there's a bit of kind of mimicry and trying to figure things out and and understand your social environment i i sometimes think uh think back on my childhood and remember sitting there uh watching my dad had watched like mash or i think maybe by cheers maybe i was old enough to understand some of the jokes uh but or or late night or whatever and my dad would be watching and i'd be sitting uh by my dad and he'd be like laughing at the tv and i remember like laughing along too even though i didn't understand the joke just because i liked that my dad was laughing and and sometimes i i i go down this worm a hole of of my own development and how i became you know the person i am i'm like oh was that just did that get in my head early on that i want to be that thing on the tv making my dad laugh is that why i'm a stand-up comedian but but there might be a, a, a bit uh of influence in that regard of of kids just wanting to mimic like there would be for example there'd be nothing if you had a kid never seen tv before walks into a room with the tv i think understandably their mind would be blown however if you had a kid that had never seen tv before and it walked in and there was an adult wearing like virtual reality glasses well they can't see what's interesting in there but i bet they would be interested just because they're like oh there's an adult doing something different that i haven't seen before i want to i'm going to be an adult one day i mean we have to have cognitive 
processes in place that if you're not even if you're not consciously saying this to yourself as a kid that that has to be kind of mimicking or interested in uh in these older more experienced people and parents and whatnot so there there must be something like that and and this a bit of a snowball effect of parents on their phones now and watching tv and kids being interested because they see their parents on it yeah, absolutely. Um, so there's a lot of sort of social learning that takes place around media use, um, whether it's television or, or interactive tech or, or anything like that. And uh, one of the pieces of advice I heard from a colleague giving a, a lecture to parents about this topic was um, behave yourselves. If you want my, my number one piece of advice, it's behave yourselves, follow the rules you want your kids to follow. Don't use your phone at the dinner table if you don't want your kids to do that and turn the TV off after an hour or two if you want your kids to do that and, and so on and so forth. And I think it's a great, short, quick piece of advice that so few of us follow. Mm-hmm. All right. So let's get into that that uh, other piece of some of your studies. So you you study kind of specifically how, especially some of the stuff that I saw was, and how toddlers interact with screen, basically kind of, I'm probably going to butcher this, uh, assessing, uh, you, you do studies to, <laughs> to assess whether they know what they're looking at is real or not, and and how they kind of problem solve and how they interact with these screens and how that changes over development and what a what a great way to find insight into the inner workings of the mind especially with these motion capture cameras and everything that can be uh, applied and, and studied now so can you talk a little bit about that work yeah sure so um so one of the main topics that we study and the the sort of learning arm of our research is uh based on something called the video deficit which is um this uh, sort of phenomenon that was found um over a decade ago in the research where um toddlers and by that i mean kids uh, about a year and a half to two and a half years of age like 15 to 30 months roughly um they learn the, the early research showed that they learn less well from a video demonstration than a real life demonstration and these are cases where you're seeing the exact same thing either right in front of you with a real person or that exact same person on closed circuit television, for example, from the next room. So sometimes it's even happening live, but just not right in front of you. Um, so lots and lots of studies show that toddlers are less likely to learn a new word or um, imitate a new action ba- based on a demonstration they saw on video than in real life. Um, and so it used to be called the video deficit. So everyone at the time, the thinking was toddlers can't learn well from video. We now know it's not just video, it's sort of transferring between two different situations. And the, this gets at your your earlier point about uh, how children come to understand that video, the, the relationship between video and real life, that kind of symbolic relationship. So the people I see in The Bachelor, let's say, for instance, if I were to watch such a show, exist in the world, right? Those people exist in the world, but they don't live in my TV set. They exist elsewhere in the world. And the t- video is just a symbol representing where they were at one time. This is a surprisingly difficult thing for little ones to learn, because the first thing they'll assume is that these are real things, and they can reach out and touch that object on the screen or uh, interact with it in some way. Um, and so I, I've always been really fascinated by kids' confusion around these kinds of things, and it results in them doing silly, cute, funny 
things that um, you know are, are amusing for most adults to see, but f- sort of in my scientific work are really fascinating. Sort of what's going on in their heads and how do they understand what this thing is? Um, so, so babies might be confused about the reality status of video. They know it's not a real thing. So, if you show them a photograph of an object next to the real object, they'll grab the real one, not the photograph. So, they understand that there's a difference, um, but they might not understand what to make of a video of something. Hmm. So, like I said, over a decade of research finds toddlers are less likely to learn from video than real life. And we think one reason that happens is that early on they learn, oh, this isn't real. So I'll now discount it. This isn't real. Um, so I, it might be fun and entertaining to look at, but it has no bearing in the real world outside of the video. So even in tasks that seem really simple and obvious to an adult can be really complicated and difficult for, say, a two-year-old. And then, Like what? Um, so, for example, a lot of the research is word learning, uh, based on word learning. So I might, you know, I, I, of course, never do this, but a very talented graduate student, for instance, might show a child a video of somebody saying, this is a gazer, you know, hold up some object the kids have never seen before, give it a word that doesn't exist and say, this is a gazer. Um, then Great you, name. But yeah. There should be something called a gazer. <laughs> so well done. In my lab, there is. it's a very common non-word use, pseudo word used in research, actually. Um yeah, so so we might say this is a gazer or a vertex or something like that. Show them things they've never seen before. Then we'll show them real objects, the, the gazer, and something else and ask them which one is the gazer. And lots and lots of studies show that, say, 24-month-olds are really bad at doing that if they saw it on video first. But if they saw it in real life, they're just fine. Um, mm-hmm. So they can fast map and learn words just with one demonstration of that object if it's in person. But if it's on video, they can't do it very well. Oh, that's so interesting. Um, and by that, I mean the word gazer in particular, <laughs> not the research. No, I'm just kidding. But there, there must be. So my, my kind of conscious awareness, so as far back as I can mem- remember, really comes online around four years old and pretty spotty around that time. I don't remember there being any confusion if, if say, my mom was on the phone with someone being like, hey, someone's on the... I kind of... I don't remember that, that being a confusing thing. But that must be to a two-year-old. So I guess what I'm getting at is, say, uh, so my friends have a baby or my brother or something has a baby, and I, I travel, so I see their kid, I interact with their kid, I'm this Shane thing that they know, and, uh, not as cool of a name as Gazer, but still, uh, and, th- but then I'm out, out traveling on the road, and you, you put me up on the Skype, you put me on a tablet now, and they see my face, and I, there, so there's gonna be, is there gonna be some confusion there with what's going on at the, at around two years old, you're saying? Yeah, and I, I think um, so. We say sort of the the toddler period. I think the video deficit research finds typically well, it's it's more complicated than it used to be, of course, as all things in, in the world of science. But it, we used to say the video deficit peaks between fifteen and thirty months of age. So that's when it's most pronounced is during this toddler period around the second birthday, give or take a few months. Um, we now know it can exist in older kids if it's a more difficult task. So it's more complicated than that. Um, nonetheless, um, so if we, we assume this is peaks in toddlerhood, yeah, it, the the reasoning would be that the situation, for example, video chat is really confusing for those kids because they're, um, you know, they might finally have a handle on the fact that video is not real and now we're showing some 
something that is real and mom is interacting with this person on the TV. What's up with that? So we might be kind of making things even more confusing and complicated. Um, and yeah, when's Minnie Mouse going to show up if, if grandma's right. on the screen? And that's it. That's, so is everything on the screen going to show up at my door one day? Exactly, exactly. So it mm. might. So we don't really know what, if any, effect this has on things like the video deficit. So is it making it harder or easier for toddlers to learn from video if they're viewing video chat? Um, we we think, um, based on just a handful of studies, that it things like that might make it easier for them to learn from video because it helps them understand that even though the TV itself isn't real, it can represent reality. So it has some connection to the real world. Um, so they might learn more easily or more or earlier on in life from video if they have these kinds of experiences. And it, it likely also helps quite a bit to have an adult, we would call it scaffolding that interaction. So helping them understand what's happening and connecting it to the real world. Hmm. Uh, when you talk about the the scaffolding with it and all it, I I think I remember some of your research was showing that that if your if a kid is say doing some task on a tablet, whether or not they're getting guidance and whether or not they're doing that with an adult or in a social environment, that that's going to change things as well. So you're you got some version of Candy Crush or whatever uh, on on a game and and how the child interacts with it is is going to is going to depend on whether this is kind of a social event or not, right? Yeah, and so I've written about that. Other other folks have done a couple of studies there, but it's um, I feel like we talk about it a lot more than we study it. That we sort of assume this is really good, right? Dad sits down next to you and helps you understand what you're seeing on TV. That's likely to help, and that's probably true. But there are actually a smaller number of studies we can point to in, in that area. I think because most of us assume it's true, but um, it, sort of theoretically, it makes good sense that if somebody helps you understand, it was a common example we use is like if you're watching a show about animals and at a and you say, oh, we went to the zoo a couple of weeks ago. Remember, we saw a polar bear at the zoo, just like the one on TV, that kind of thing. It's called the distancing prompt. It was originally, the the phrase was coined around book reading. So we recommend the same thing for book reading, that if you're reading a story to children, you can connect it to their own lives using these distancing prompts. That's likely to help them learn and make sense of what they're viewing. Hmm. And so if if a kid's like uh, struggling with a video game and they're on the last life and I rip the controller out of their hand so that I can show them how to I'm helping them. Is that what's, <laughs> that's not just out of frustration. That's me being a good person and helping them. That's well, what I'm to say. we tend to make the distinction between um, scaffolding and demonstrating. That would be a demonstration. Oh, okay. as opposed to a scaffold. I see. That makes sense. Uh, yeah, that's an interesting idea, though, the scaffolding. Oh, OK, so I have. I, I have another thing that uh, I'm just very related. You might not have an answer for me. But when you talk about age appropriate, you've said that many times now. Age appropriate, step four. This is pretty intuitive. I think that uh, uh, none of us, uh, <laughs> uh, any parent out there, fears their child finding the porn at a certain age or, you know, whatever. Uh, violent things at a certain age whatever else however and there's these great parental controls and everything however there's also this i remember when i was a kid uh, like i was 
uh, we'd go to my grandma's house or whatever and and the the adults would want to watch a movie downstairs together so they'd be like hey kids you go upstairs and you you like stay in this room and play amongst yourselves with these toys because they wanted to watch like the terminator was coming out or whatever and, and i remember that just made me want to see what they were watching so much and then i i and i remember like peeking down the stairs and getting the glimpse of the terminator and be like whoa this is what adults get to watch I re- or or you know like a, a lady would have her poopies out on tv and my mom would be telling me to close my eyes and guess what i could see through the little cracks <laughs> on my fingers a little pervy little eight-year-old boy <laughs> but this is like it almost made it a little more enticing for me this is a this is a tricky little situation for parents to be in as well you may not have anything to say in this regard but is there anything out that has anything like this been studied yeah uh yeah definitely and most of the research i know about is um with older kids like older children school-age children and teens um and yeah it's called the forbidden fruit phenomenon (laughs) which would probably be exactly it's a it's a great name it's very on the nose um yeah, and so um, a lot of this, um, the research I know of is um, especially in the context of um, ratings. So if you um, show, a, a, a say, a teenager a movie that has either a PG-13 label on it or an R-rated label on it, same movie, but you just stick this, you know, R-rated sticker or PG-13 sticker on it. The R-rated movie, they're, they're much more interested in seeing. They would like to see it. It's much more attractive to them. So just putting the, taking the same movie and putting a label for an older age group on it somehow makes it more attractive to kids. Hmm. All right. Well, I have a bunch of questions about the future, but I have, uh, before we get into that, and also uh, anything we missed, you're welcome to... Uh, get out there too because all of your stuff i don't think we we covered in only a sliver of some of the studies that you do so first off i have my guests each week plug a charity of their choice so i don't want to forget about that let's get that out there that's the important part so what charity would you or charities would you like to plug (laughs) there are a few but um, i'll say the one that i'd like to plug is the rape crisis center in madison which is um an organization that um provides support services and and counseling for um as the name implies victims of sexual assaults um at any age any gender identity and they provide um, sort of emotional and social support. And um, uh, they don't provide literal legal counsel, but they help give advice about what individuals and victims might be able to pursue. And um, and they'll go with them into the courtroom and provide that kind of social and emotional support. Oh, well, that's wonderful. Very important. Um, all right. And, and people can always go to the Here We Are podcast as well if you want to find the quick link to that. Uh, all right. So one, I want to, and you can present this in any way that you want to transition it i'll just set up what i what i want to talk about and you can anyway i'll let you steer the ship so some of your research that you are currently the most excited about and then i want to hear a little bit about where the future of some of this research is going and then because this is uh when we talk about technology um a lot of times the, the mind will run away, but the people will go like, well, what's next? And you, you sit here and say, well, people have always had issues with books and uh, various media. And so 
you know, maybe these tablets aren't, maybe we're creating too much of a fuss about this. Uh, but is that going to, are we eventually going to be strapped into the virtual reality and in a gyrosphere? And then you have your, you have, uh, you're intravenously getting fed as you're plugged into the matrix and you're, <laughs> and you're running through and navigating this, this virtual world. And that's how we make a living. And it, it somehow keeps our bodies physically moving and, and fed for us as well. When that happens, are people going to be like, well, this is, you know, Plato had a problem with, <laughs> with the written, <laughs> with the written word. So, I mean, we, the, this is the, the, the matrix is great for us. Uh, so you don't necessarily have to, uh, address that silly example, but I do want to know about your thoughts about uh, some of the future of this stuff and your future research. Sure. Yeah. Um, so as far as things I'm most excited about in uh, my current research, I alluded to one of them earlier. So I, um, I've always been a strong advocate for watching children watch television or use tech or whatever, whatever the thing is we're interested in. Because I think a lot of us have a lot of assumptions about what children understand and don't understand when it comes to screens. And we're often wrong. We have assumptions about what scares children in movies and what doesn't. And we're often wrong. So I think watching children in the moment of using media is uh, really important. So the study where we're measuring physiological arousal and heart rate and um, those kinds of things while they're playing with television in the background, that kind of research, I think, will be increasingly important. That's um, with pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. It's, um, it's, it's a lot of fun for, for a person who likes to analyze data and that kind of thing. But, but I think it's important to to um, understand how children process media in real time, not just after the fact. Um, so I think that's an important direction. One of the things I'm excited about in our research. Um, Can I ask? I'm yeah. going to interrupt you for one second. What gets the old heart racing in, in kids? So uh, we've only just started scratching the surface on this, but um, so the reason we're interested in heart rate is um, we use it as a measure of cognitive engagement. So heart rate slows when we're cognitively engaged. So we would ah. expect it to be lower when we're watching television than, for example, playing with toys or certainly running around the room. So that that is in fact the case what we're seeing in in the lab. So that's um, so that's cool. I mean, we think that that's the more heart rate slows, uh, we think that will predict what they remember. That if your heart rate slows more, it means you're more cognitive engaged and therefore like more likely to remember that's to be answered we'll we'll look at that one later mm. um, uh, so that's why we're interested in heart rate but other folks use heart rate to look at emotional responsiveness so they'll use other heart rate or, or other galvanic skin response or other kinds of physiological measures to look at emotional responses to um, when they're for example viewing with a caregiver are they more or less emotionally aroused and cognitively engaged or um, if they're watching something fast paced versus slow paced and so other folks have used it in that kind of way but there's surprisingly little research using these kinds of in-the-moment physiological measures of how children respond emotionally and cognitively to um, to any kind of media use. Okay, sorry to interrupt. That's now you can talk about the future. Great, <laughs> but I'm glad I did because that's that uh, as as you shared that little bit of information. I I bet if you're monitoring me, my heart rate would have slowed because I was cognitively engaged. Yep, that's, pupil dilation too. I bet. <laughs> That's so interesting. I've yeah. never heard that before. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, it's cool stuff. Well, now I have a lot of questions that maybe <laughs> you wouldn't be able to. So is is being cognitively engaged, this might be a leap, but is does that mean that that could be kind of stress reductive in a way or potentially people would be suffering less from anxiety if they were 
cognitively engaged? Is yeah. Is that a connection you could make? I, I, I think that makes good sense. I don't know the research in the area well enough to know for sure. What hmm. I do know is that um, some of the physiological responses we would expect to see if you're really engrossed in a movie, for example, um, might be really similar to what we might see during um, mindful, relaxing type activities, or um, there's sort of neuroscientific evidence or brain brain, brain imaging evidence um, showing that the similar um, neural networks are engaged during listening to a story or watching a video as mind wandering, just sort of letting your mind wander rather than focus and problem solve and engage in a task. Um, and so it does seem like at least physiologically, um, there are similar things going on there. Um, and we certainly know from lots of research that a lot of people use television as a way to cope with stressful life events or negative feelings, whether that's helpful and actually leads to positive outcomes, I think is less certain. So we, you know, we, we use lots of things to regulate our emotions that might not be good for us. So it's hard to know whether using television in that way is in the long term beneficial, hmm. but we certainly do it. Right. Yeah. We use drugs and ice cream and everything else. Sure. Directly. Yeah. <laughs> um, hmm, okay. All right. The future. I want, uh, that was the last little thing. I want, what do you, where do you think uh, you were kind of in the middle of that talking about the Fitbits and this exciting physiological uh, data. There's going to be more of that happening. Yeah, I think um, I, we continue to get new cool tools to help us, especially in the research I do with really young kids who can't verbalize what they're thinking. Um, they're really cool tools to try to understand what they're thinking or what they understand and how different devices are affecting them in the moment. So I think new tools will will allow us to ask new questions. Um, you mentioned new technology. Virtual reality is certainly something that can be in every home. It's it's not yet, but it certainly could be. It's on the market and it's cheap, relatively speaking, to what it used to be. Um, I think there are folks who study the next technological advancement. And I've had folks even at conferences say, why are we talking about television? That's old media. No one's going to be talking about television. I disagree, but but I, I the point is well taken that um, we don't know a whole lot at all about the impact of say tablet computers and smartphones on young kids. Mm -hmm. We know basically nothing about um, intelligent agents. You know, if you have Alexa or Google, whatever you know, these kinds of um, interactive devices in the home that you can talk to. What do kids understand about that? What impact may that have? We know virtually nothing about that. So, mm -hmm. anytime there's this new leap entering the home, I think we we know nothing about it. And by the time the science catches up, the new thing is out. So it's really hard to keep up. But I think uh, intelligent agents or interactive um, toys. Uh, I know there's um, there are different dolls, for example, that yeah. can interact with children in a semi AI sort of way. Right. Yeah. I was going to ask because that's mm -hmm. just like the next scale of. But kids have been talking to Raggedy Ann forever. Sure. Now Raggedy Raggedy Ann can talk back. So sure. Yep. Yep. And again, another you know really controversial technological advancement. People have raised concerns about privacy issues, and some people say it's great. They might. If something negative has happened to them, they might tell their interactive doll when they won't tell a grown up because they don't want to be judged or, you know, so people have raised both concerns and hopes for what these can do for kids. The research isn't there. We have no idea what what impact this might have, if any. So I think, as with all of these new technological advancements, there are hopes, there are fears and a lot of unknowns. Hmm. 
Well, this has been a fascinating conversation. Yeah, thanks uh, for chatting. Yeah, thank you for, for coming on the show, Heather Gregorian. And uh, I, I look forward to our show tomorrow. I'll, I'll keep the listener up to date with how that goes. And thank you listeners, by the way, for being such wonderful, curious people. And we'll talk with you more next week. Next week on the Here We Are podcast, I'm talking with Matthew Isaac about lists, the psychology of top 10 lists sorts of things. That's one of the great things about this podcast is I get to investigate all these areas of research, things, questions I would have never even thought to ask. Areas of research, science gets in there in every little nook and cranny of life. And uh, with this podcast, I find myself talking with these people that are researching things that I would have never in a million years thought of uh, questions I would have never even thought to ask and I get to meet these people and uh, and it's always just so fascinating to me just to see these unexpected areas of research I love it and uh, I want to give a shout out to Ramin Nazer who helps out with the show check out his art his animation on Instagram in particular but on Twitter RameenNazer.com and thank you to Mike Kaplan and Zach Sherwin for writing me such a catchy theme song. I love it. People always talk about how much they love the theme song. Grateful to those guys. And those of you that listen all the way to the end, you are, of course, my favorites. Music brought to you this week by The Long Hunt.